Assalamu alaikum and peace be upon you. You are listening to Pathway to Peace on the Voice of Islam radio station. Pathway to Peace is a show where we take an analytical look at how we can achieve peace, whether that be political peace, economic peace, societal peace, or perhaps the most important of them all, inner peace. I'd like to start with a quote from the Holy Quran to set the scene for our show and sort of explain what we'll be thinking about today. And they, the women, have rights similar and equal to those of men over them in equity. This is from uh, chapter 2, verse 229. The above verse from the Quran is clear and plain to see. Men and women have spiritual equality in Islam. There is spiritually no preference or privilege to belonging to either gender. This was recorded in the Quran 1400 years ago. <clears throat> Yet even today in advanced societies, men and women continue to struggle for equality. For much of the past century, for example, the fight to achieve um, good laws for women, uh, such as the suffragette movement, has been ongoing. And it's only quite recent compared to that verse we quoted from the Quran. There are countless feminist scholars and commentators in Europe and the US who've led the charge against female oppression on the streets and in the courts. And this continues. And no doubt legislation has evolved over time. And we know that since the 60s, when women first fought for gaining equality in the working world, things are drastically changing, yet there still remains a gender pay gap. And we can say that there is a universal truth that women have failed on their own to dismantle the structural barriers to equality, and so it has become clear that women alone cannot change society entirely. So what role have men played in this social change? The perception of masculinity has also undergone alteration, and we know in the 90s society in Britain we had Metro Man, we've had White Van Man, um, I know now the young people use the term road man. So there's always been this uh, different and evolving understanding of what it means to be a man, whether that's in the boardroom or whether that's the decline of traditional heavy industry in the UK, which made huge social changes across much of the north of England. This generational gender-based role expectations are and were shifting for both men and women and both men and women needed to adapt to new situations which they found themselves working. But the most recent permeation of this debate is that of toxic masculinity. Toxic masculinity has been in the news for the past year and it's really come into the fore in the past few weeks. You can hardly turn on social media or look at the news without hearing some high profile case of a famous influencer or some level of debate about this topic. Um, a lot of this is what we're going to unpick today. We're going to think about what is toxic masculinity? Is toxic masculinity a threat as some people perceive it to be? Is masculinity itself um, something that needs to be debated? And what are the roles of men, women and children in understanding what is toxic, what's not toxic, and how to create peace within our society and within our homes. I'll be joined today by our regular panellists, Mrs Shazia Bhatti and Ms Sabiha Iqbal. 
Shazia is an immigration solicitor from London and Sabiha is a university chaplain. Welcome, ladies. Assalamu alaikum. Um, and I've just touched briefly, very briefly, I've tried to encapsulate, you know, a hundred years of the feminist movement in, uh, in five seconds. Um, and essentially, we're not really talking about the feminist uh, viewpoint today. We're kind of trying to do something different, which is for us as women to discuss what we understand about toxic masculinity and what we think um, the impact of that is on, on societal peace. But I think it's important to define that terminology that we use because, you know, it means different things to different people. Um, I know toxic is used a lot. The word toxic can be used for friendships, for relationships, for workplaces. All uh, different interactions are often labelled as toxic. But toxic masculinity is a reasonably new term and it's only been around, as far as I'm aware, for the past couple of years. Um, I know, for example, that uh, teenage boys may dislike the the term and many teenage boys feel that toxic masculinity is a bit of a slur that's used against men in general. So, you know, let's start off by asking what what do you think masculinity is? How do we define masculinity, given, given that we're talking from a female perspective? Yeah, so the word masculine as a noun um, refers to someone of the male gender. Um, and as an adjective, um, to be masculine is to have qualities or appearance traditionally associated with men or boys. And I think that masculinity, therefore, is the qualities or attributes regarded as characteristic of men or boys. For example, someone who's handsome, muscled and driven, that would be a prime example of masculinity. Yeah, so that's a literal definition, you know, in the dictionary. But in terms of reality and, you know, a practical definition, I suppose, then often we're led to recognise those characteristics and traits of masculinity by those people that we are surrounded by, those people that we live with and spend time with. That could be our family, maybe a father figure, brother, perhaps a work colleague. But also, as you mentioned, Sarah, as well, through social media, we recognise masculine traits. Anything else, Shazia? I mean, I think I think that's the problem, isn't it? Is that when um, the role models are not within the family, they're not the father, mm. brother, uncle, aunt, uncle, grandparents, etc. Mm. Then people look to other role models, which may be, you know, movie stars, footballers, mm-hmm. um, and they look to them as what is it to be a man or what is it to be masculine. Um, and then also body image comes into it. If the footballer is the image of the perfect man, yeah. um, then obviously, you know, younger boys will look up to that image as that's what. I want to be like. Yeah. I do. I think there's definitely some notion that, you know, whether it's a modern interpretation or a more historic interpretation, there is a link between, you mentioned, Sabiha, that it's to do with attributes and behaviour. But when we think of, oh, what's your masculine ideal, we do think of this uh, outer image. Mm-hmm. You know, that's the first thing that comes to mind, you know, the six pack or the muscles, because that's what we're presented with mm. as the ideal. That's what's re- rewarded. You know, how many successful, famous men in the movie industry or online are actually working hard to get that body mm. image that's actually not quite difficult to get? So it takes a lot of hard work and dedication. It's not a normal image mm. uh, to be um, so muscular. And so I think this is where you've got this 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 um, disconnect between the outer and the inner, because a lot of what you also mentioned there was to do with physical strength, you know, the, and even that body image is, is tied up with physical strength. Um, 
we know that men in general are stronger than women, that they have separate sports in the Olympics or they have separate teams when they're playing on the national level in most areas. So there is a link between masculinity and physicality. But Sabiha, the definition you presented was was more to do with behaviour. And I think in the debate, a lot of it is overlooked. But certainly in the debate around toxic masculinity, it's most certainly behaviour that we're talking about. Mm. So in a sense, that toxic masculinity is not tied to a specific body image from somebody who's accusing others of having toxic masculinity. I don't know how the people that are promoting that specific brand how they feel but from my perspective I think it is the behavior that's more important I don't know if you'd agree with that but Mm. the behavior is more significant than the outer body image Mm. I mean I think you know it's a set of attitudes and way of behaving stereotypically associated with or expected of men um, and it's regarded as having a negative impact on men and on our society as a whole I mean one example of this I think this was a a few years ago when Piers Morgan the presenter um, on Good, Good Morning Britain said a father wearing a baby carrier to hold his son was emasculated and that he hated papooses or, or baby carriers. And he later expressed disappointment to see that Daniel Craig, who's the current James Bond actor, was using a buckled carrier for his one-month-old daughter. He went on to ridicule several other men showing show, who showed photos of themselves baby-wearing. And this, to me, seems it's nonsensical. I mean, you know, those of us that have children know how much the children love being in those baby mm. carriers and how comfortable they are. Um, and what has that got to do with, um, you know, a man carrying his child? What does that have anything to do with masculinity? It just makes no sense. It's- so that's your, your sort of linking this notion of toxic masculinity with those traditional mm. traditional values. Sabiha, what, what about you? What's toxic masculinity? I think that, you know, lately uh, the term masculinity is really heard just on its own. And um, pointing out as well the word toxic is always kind of added onto it um, in a sentence and I think that um, you know the only thing that masculinity is therefore associated with you know as of late is is toxicity Mm -hmm. and I think that um, you know as we've described earlier as well it's it should be about the qualities and attributes of um, men or boys Um, and so what we're not hearing I think at the moment is the male gender kind of being described to somebody who it is nurturing, understanding, trustworthy, reliable, you know, someone with integrity, but actually toxic instead, and someone who's harmful, you know, or has some form of negative, um, harmful masculinity. Um, And that's how we're describing their mental state, perhaps. Um, And perhaps that's also connected to their spiritual state as well. Um, So it is a... it's some it's a way that the society is now behave, um, uh, describing how men's behaviour is, um, and you know there you know if you look um, online as well through research, um, there are different um, uh, characteristics I suppose which are labelled as a toxic ma- masculinity that can be homophobia, someone who's in need of control, uh, promiscuity, refusing to help in household duties, um, some a male who's you know risk taking. Um, um, sexual aggression towards women um, is a behaviour trait of toxic ma- masculinity and stoicism as well. And so, you know, these these kind of attributes are, are kind of being applied to to men, but we we know that all men are not mm. like that. Absolutely, and um, it's interesting that you're saying these are behaviours, and these are the ones that we hear and we see on social media very often, mm. but. You know, some of those can also be be for women. And I know that in this debate around toxic masculinity, 
the focus really has been on the relationship between men and women mm. and the fact that what is perceived as toxic masculinity is something where women have a different or a separate role to men. And we'll come and talk about that a little bit later about whether that actually is toxic or not. Mm. Um, because as I said at the beginning, we live in this Western society that has the view that there should be equality, that men and women are equal. And women have been fighting for equality in the workplace for 50, 60 years. Mm. Um, but this toxic masculinity is, is not advocating for equality between men and women. Um, so we're going to go unpick that a little bit later on. You know, I just speaking from my own experience, I, I am a teacher and I've seen online a slight panic amongst many educators who've been faced with, I would say, what is overwhelmingly older adolescent boys who are following influential social media uh, personalities who are advocating a brand of masculinity and talking about being a man and what it means to be a real man and how to be successful um, and accepting of being a man and it, educators are worried that boys who are followed or influenced uh, follow this ma uh, people such as that or they're influenced by these sort of personalities um, they're bringing that into the classroom and it's worrying and, mm. and the way that teachers are handling it is to um, have assemblies where they talk about people perhaps certain personalities are, are mentioned by name which is the first time I've come across that but I'm also what I'm hearing is it's mm. not having very much success mm. like the young men are not this view about manhood that's being branded toxic is appealing to a lot a lot of young boys so one person in particular that we'll just mention briefly is, of course, Andrew Tate. And I just mention him because he's been in the media a lot. And I think on Pathway to Peace, we do talk about what's current. Um, so there is an ongoing criminal investigation, which we're not going to go into. We're not going to talk about that. But is this problem of toxic man masculinity tied to one person or is it wider than that? If Do you think if we um, ban these individual personalities from social media platforms, will that issue go away or is it a deeper social problem? I mean, I think, you know, there are, I think it's a much deeper social problem than banning one person. It's an mm. ideology and it's a um, something that's kind of um, gaining its own force, as it were. Mm. Um, and actually, rather than banning that particular person, it's much it's much better to unpick what he's mm. saying with, with the younger boys, with the older boys and say, well, he's saying this. You know, why do we agree mm. or, or disagree with this? And, you know, the, there are, you know, systemic toxic systems such as domestic violence and gender pay gap and... Those are things which are much harder to tackle and they get far less attention. Mm -hmm. You know, one personality who's speaking out seems to be getting all the attention there is. Um, and, you know, we have to look at the, the comments and behaviours of men towards women, for example, members of parliament or um, other women that are, are, you know, in the media. Um, and we need to kind of look at, look at how people in general are treated rather than how one one comments that one particular man makes mm -hmm. yeah i think um I, I agree with you i think the the airtime that's been given is, is is worrying and the fact that it's also now something which is covered in schools is mm. also um you know of concern um i think that um 
I think it's agreeable that you know some of the views that have been espoused by this man are abhorrent, and I think that um, you know I don't think any of us will defend um, you know some of the statements that we've we've already discussed in terms of toxic masculinity, and in terms of I suppose the behaviour of Andrew Tate. There is a current criminal investigation into some of those issues, and I think that speaks for itself. He does have millions of followers, however, and I think some would say that he's been very successful. But we all know that you know success is subjective as well. Um, in the past, he's certainly been invited to talk shows and has created a following, um, you know, on some renowned social media platforms. Um, and as you've pointed out already, that he's been silenced on those. But I think since being banned, um, you know, through some of them, from using some of them last year, um, because he breached guidelines um, and due to cancel culture as well, he's taken, um, he's, you know, he's, he's started to use some anti-cancel culture websites to create podcasts. Um, and I was just reading actually this morning on, on Sky news in a, in a new article about his uh, finances as well um, that he's continued to sustain you know his narrative through those kind of new domains that he's found and his followers have kind of um, joined him on there as well and it's astonishing because you know he's able to still sustain some of his finances through his merchandise sales and subscriptions to some of his tutorials mm. um, so it's, it's it's really worrying and I think it's something that does need addressing um, mm. I think it's not just a, a one person um, issue and I agree that it's um, systemic. And I also think that the question needs to be asked that this brand and, and let's be clear it's not about one person mm. it's about this brand of masculinity um, where essentially the women are con- the man is projected as somebody who's controlling the women and I know this issue of control is is central um, but at the same time it's popular mm. and young men are not put off by mm. certain things and teachers and educators have spoken about how limited the impact they think is of what of the of the anti toxic masculinity uh, assemblies or movements mm. so for me this raises the questions of, of you know is this a risk to society and if it's a risk to society how do we kind of tackle that because what we're doing so far is not working is what i would say mm. and also the fact that um social media personalities espousing this brand of masculinity where the man is in control Mm. um they are popular but it seems that like as with anything there's a gap in the market yeah and why so for me i would look at it like why is there a gap in the market why is there this need there must be some sort of unmet need in our young adolescent boys Mm. that's making this message appeal to them yeah i think um there seems to be um it's, it's quite apparent, I think, that it's young men and boys, uh, perhaps you know more so than older, um, that are more perhaps easily influenced, and you know those who are aspiring to create an identity of themselves, perhaps, or those who need affirmation. Um, I think th- there's a certain perhaps type of people who still hold an admiration for uh, for him, and um, you know him being Andrew Tate that we're speaking about at the moment um, and continue to follow him and his messages, you know, despite what, you know, what's um, being said in terms of a counter narrative. Um, but I was also doing some research and it was, it was really interesting to read that um, some of the web traffic reports to some of the websites that um, he's been using, um, despite there being a peak once he was taken off some mainstream social media platforms, there's been a decline since um, his arrest. And I think that that, that hopefully indicates mm. 
that you know people are still able to draw some boundaries around what's happening and you know what's acceptable and what's not um, but then also I suppose there's a there's a counter narrative there as well that actually when someone's out of sight they're out of mind and people then mm. you know look to somebody else to follow um, let's hope that there's something more positive um, to kind of latch on to yeah. Shazia why do you think it, the message of this masculinity this certain brand we're talking about why do you think it's so appealing I mean I think you know there has been some very positive messages about what it is to be a man um, and it's quite aspirational um, you know he uh, people like him mm. um, you know very successful they're doing well um, they're earning a lot of money and that's quite aspirational for young boys to see that if we work hard and, and some of the messages that are put out is that if you work hard and you do well mm. you can actually achieve these things um, and so that's quite an aspirational message for, for young boys to, to have and also you it puts the onus on them that you have to do the hard work in order to make mm. it successful and it's not going to come to you and that's quite an appealing message and that's actually that bit of it is quite a positive message that yep. you have to work hard and do it yourself so when when the younger boys you know or the younger men hear these kind of things hmm. um, and then they separate the less positive things and they're kind of drawn in through the positive things yeah. that they hear um, but sometimes I think that they then listen to the negative things and it, they're then confused because some things that these people are saying are really positive for them and something are negative and they kind of look at it that if this person is able to say such good things then maybe the things that I thought were bad are not so bad. It's a really yeah. difficult situation. Yeah, I, I suppose yeah. that also therefore is a risk, isn't it, to people uh, perhaps I mean, who are more vulnerable? I think that we've talked about how it's, you know, these older teenage boys or, or young men that are, are predominantly attracted to this type of messaging. And the fact is that they're at that point in their life when anything seems possible. Mm. You know, like they've got the world at their feet or the world at their fingertips and they're making their life choices about going to university or going into the world of work. So they have all the options available to them. Mm. Um, but what they don't have is life experience. Mm. So those parts of the messaging that are about women and about the relationship with women and how to handle your woman or how to control your woman or how to, you know, attract a, a high quality partner or whatever it is that side of the messaging is actually not in the experience of these young men mm -hmm. so they don't know so actually what it's offering them is potential and possibility mm. so they're accepting this part of the messaging that they don't really understand and they don't really have experience of because what they want is that opportunity to be the best that they can be and some of these social media influencers have come from you know quite poor backgrounds mm. and quite humble backgrounds but are showing this massive wealth now obviously we don't know how they acquired it but it is what's projected at our young boys in our society and um that's it's not the nepotism which we see in other areas it's not the you know your connections or who you know it's the message is you can do it too. If you work hard and you're determined, and we give a lot of that messaging in school about resilience <laughs> and determination. So, you know... And I, then there's a practical example of somebody who's saying, I did do all those things and yep. look what I've achieved. Yeah, and if you're unsatisfied, get up and do something mm. about it. So it is, it is quite empowering. And I think the bits that are less savoury, these young men don't understand fully. Mm. So, and I think we're going to unpick how you can give that young men that better understanding of that, that that's not how a relationship works that's not how things go together but sometimes they don't really 
understand that at that point. And I think it's also important that we do that through the mediums that reach, you know, mm. um, young people as well. Absolutely. And he's obviously been able to do some of that yeah. using technology. And I think it's important that, you know, we also look to those means. And quite often, I suppose um, the older generation or parents are not seen to be as, as tech savvy or, you know, mm. as in tune with what, what's kind of Absolutely. being spread out there. Yeah. So um, I think it's important that... I mean, I, I know a lot of parents who um, hadn't even heard mm. of this particular person until he became arrested. Mm. Whereas actually, you need to know what your young people mm. are listening to. You need to have that conversation and you need to be... You do need to keep yourself up to date with mm. what they're watching and listening to. I think that that is a message loud and clear from this situation that if your children are, even from a young age, 12, 13 digesting a diet that you're not aware about yep. that's going to go into their into their uh, understanding of the world but you know it is clear from this debate around toxic masculinity that as a society young men do have a need to understand masculinity and what it is to be a man and i do feel sometimes as a woman but I, you know i can't offer all of that uh, to my to my sons so where in our society do young men find that out? If it's not on social media, where are they going to find out what it means to be a man? That's a really diff- tough question, I think. I mean, in my line of work as a chaplain and being you know, having worked in higher education for almost two decades, um, you know, I've worked with students with lots of barriers, um, barriers to socialise, you know, language barriers, cultural barriers and so on. Um, <clears throat> and I think that... Um, I've worked with people both online and also in person, especially through the pandemic. And I cannot, uh, we can't underestimate the power and impact, you know, of real life interactions. It just shouldn't be underestimated. And I think, um, you know, I think it gives people an opportunity to better understand other individuals once you do things in person, you know, versus online. A lot of young people spend a lot of time online getting to know personalities and you know set their role models through those through film as we said earlier as well or sport but we don't really know them and I think once we know people in person um, we can use our intuition um, to make decisions more wisely about whether they're harmful for us perhaps or you know whether they're toxic people and I think befriending people and finding commonalities with people you know of the same gender or even the opposite gender has an advantage and you know getting to grips with whether someone has characteristics and a lifestyle and realness to their identity that it's you know actually real that they've actually got that money or it's not just something that they've mm. borrowed or hired or whatever um it's hard to be able to tell that you know d- differentiate um online um in that online kind of dimension um so I think that no matter how much an individual is given airtime, you never really get a full picture. Mm-hmm. So it's important to have that counter narrative to what's on television, social media as absolutely. well. Absolutely. And um, I think, yeah. yeah. Go ahead. No, I was going to say that, you know, I absolutely agree that face to face human interaction is really important. And we know, you know, for example, in Islam, we go to the mosque mm-hmm. and men in particular are asked by Islam to regularly attend the mosque mm. and it's you know that's where they can see those role models and exactly as you said Spiha have that face to face interaction yeah. but how can society build foundations of peace because we're looking at pathway to peace and you know how do we you've mentioned face to face we've mentioned going to the mosque what, how else can society make sure that some of that toxic messaging doesn't become ingrained in the minds of young men um, I think that um a key message there um, that I've you know done some learning around as well is that 
um, so that it doesn't become ingrained is, is for everyone to try and be a non-toxic person. I think the more people who are morally and so- socially well-behaved and speak well and do good, you know, and, and they're given attention and recognition and positive affirmations, then I think that uh, overall, in, in terms of our society, we'll have a better opportunity or chance to be able to have people who are less toxic. Um, you know, I think that um, whether you know, uh, we exercise positive and peace-loving traits of, um, in, in terms of femininity or masculinity, it really starts from home. And so um, it's something that um, we've got to um, n- you know, recognise that it starts within the, the, the walls of our home and it starts from us as well. Um, and that's where we're influenced by. But then the influences outside of work as well um, are, are things which will affect how we um, conduct ourselves. If we fill our time, um, you know, being around people who are non-toxic and trying to try to adopt a personality trait um, called a neutric personality, um, then I think we will hopefully build the the right foundations for society. You know, there's a saying um, that we we become, you know, the kind of person we spend the most time with. And there was a saying uh, by Earl Nightingale that we become what we think about. And so um, it's really important that we try and find means to be able to um, learn to be more nurturing, understanding, mm. trustworthy, reliable, honest and confident as well. And I think that's that's the base message, I think, in terms of how we can do that as a society. Absolutely. And I was just going to turn to Shazia and ask what you think, what you thought on that. How do you think society can tackle? I mean, I think Islam gives us, um, you know, a lot of these answers because it holds family life as the epicentre for the growth of spiritual, moral and social development. The Holy Quran has constantly referred to family life and its importance, from how children should treat their parents kindly to instructions for parents regarding their children. The Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of God be upon him, practically showed and taught how family life should be constructed for peace, harmony and development. And if peace within a family can be achieved, then the whole society at large will enjoy peace. Every person has to play their role in establishing this peace from parents to children. And the aim of any Muslim household is to uphold the Holy Quran and practice it um, through the example of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him. And as a result, a beautiful and harmonious family life will evolve in which the rights of every member are taken care of. The Holy Quran lays out examples of true believing men and women in the following manner. And this is from chapter 33, verse 36. And it says... Surely men who submit themselves to God and women who submit themselves to him and believing men and believing women and obedient men and obedient women and truthful men and truthful women and men steadfast in their faith and steadfast women and men who are humble and women who are humble and men who give alms and women who give alms and men who fast and women who fast and men who guard their chastity and women who guard their chastity and men who remember Allah much and women who remember him Allah has prepared for all of them forgiveness and a great reward. So it, it shows that, that this equality between between the men and women, that, you know, it doesn't say that women have to obey men and, and, and men don't mm. have to be obedient. And, and, you know, it gives that example. Mm. And as Muslims uh, who are part of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, we're so fortunate to have the support and structures in place, both inside and outside the home. In our homes, we know our roles and responsibilities and the auxiliaries within the communities help us prepare us as mothers, daughters, mother-in-laws, sisters, aunts, etc., and that training, um, and that training is also for elders, for for men and boys too, to remind of the moral behaviour we should exercise. And we have classes. We here listen to sermons. We have interactive events. 
Um, and, and there's so many uh, ways that we can learn from other people who've been through these things before us. And outside the home, there are structures in place of going to prayers, as you said, Sarah, um, at the mosque and doing volunteering activities, which allow men and women to meet each other, to learn from each other mm. and interact as a community. And it means that where, you know, if I'm telling my child something and he's not listening mm. to me, anybody else in the community, mm, he's more likely to listen to, to, an, <laughs> to somebody else than they are to listen to, to their own parents. Yeah. Um, and it gives us that structure in which we're able to do those things. Mm, absolutely. But also, I think there's a whole debate about what success means. Like, success mm. is building a peaceful community where we live together, respect each other, live in harmony. That's success, as opposed to how many cars. Um, <laughs> I was having that conversation with my with my son What's the difference between having 30 cars and having yes. 50 cars? <laughs> there's a difference between having no cars and having one, yes. yes. But there's not much difference between having 30 cars or 50 cars. It becomes irrelevant. Yeah. So I don't think he agreed with my <laughs> point of view. Uh, so you're listening to Pathway to Peace on the Voice of Islam radio station. And today we're discussing um, this m- new phenomenon or modern phenomenon of to- toxic masculinity. Um, You know, we've mentioned a few points about how society as a whole can defend itself against uh, toxic masculinity and the masculinity that's harmful and damaging. Um, We've talked about doing communal activities and being of service, which is an integral part of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community. Um, But, you know, this brand of masculinity that is considered toxic is often perceived as aggressive, angry and oppressive of women. And, you know, those messages are not the basis for peace. um, And they are perceived as, you know, harsh and patriarchal societies. But we need to really be clear that this is the behaviour that we mentioned. We talked about masculinity being a behaviour. In no way is there the perception that men are toxic. It's the certain behaviour that we're really um, honing in on. And I think that the young men and boys sometimes don't see that distinction or don't feel that distinction when they're having a debate in the classroom or with people of the other of of the opposite gender they do feel a bit attacked and they do feel defensive but just to be very clear we're talking about behavior and not masculinity in general and that brings me on to my point of you know as women we have our perceptions we have our understandings um you know and we have a different idea of what toxic masculinity is. So how can women defend themselves and defend society from uh, the attraction of this this type of masculinity? I mean, I think we, we, as women, need to start by teaching our sons, our brothers, our husbands, um, and, and the other men in our life. And I think that's you know, that's what we are learning from the Auxiliary um, Association, that's Lejnai Maila, which is the women's association for women above the age of 15. Um, and, and as we were saying, we have all these workshops and, you know, there's been in the UK these parenting workshops and it's not only about how we teach our daughters, but also how we teach our sons and how we mm-hmm. um, behave in our own homes um, so that the that our young boys can, can learn mm. from us um, as well as learning from their fathers and the other men men in their house. Um, but this is why in Islam, you know, we love to say that uh, paradise lies at the feet of your mothers. You know, it's not at the feet of your fathers. It's at that because mothers have that role of yeah. teaching their sons and their daughters 
how to behave towards each other. It's uh, not and the mother is the women. first yeah. teacher, isn't she? Mm. You know, from from before the child is born and we're taught we should recite the Quran, etc. Yeah. So that the boys, you know, all the children learn from us. Yeah. And, you know, some people might argue that as we've discussed, um, what is branded as toxic masculinity is in fact traditional male role model where the male role is going out and earning money and bringing it in and controlling his household and organising everything. Um, so, you know, economically in society, it's structured that not many families can survive on, on, on one income or women are taught that they're supposed to go out and have it all, uh, really. Mm. So is toxic man- masculinity just the same as traditional values? Sabiha, what do you think? Um, there's a teaching in the Holy Quran, um, which I'll read out. But whoso does good works, whether male or female, and is a believer, such shall enter heaven and shall not be wronged a whit, even as much as the little hollow in the back of a date stone. That's from chapter 4, verse 125. And I think this verse really emphasizes that, you know, we're all encouraged to do good and not compelled by, you know, to... Um, so we're not compelled, but we're encouraged to do good. Um, and that as a result, we won't be wronged. And sometimes in society, I think that... Um, there can be a really a narrow-minded narrative that arises that only through being hard and defensive and passive-aggressive that we can become achievers. And I think that's really stemmed from this kind of uh, idea of an individual individualistic society. But it doesn't take much to recognise that actually we function much, much better as, as a collective um, when we're working together, learning from each other as a human race. And I think that women, uh, you know, our narrative shouldn't really be one of responsibility to defend, um, as that implies kind of being attacked, perhaps all, and you know, kind of being the only ones at risk. And, and I think, in terms of to- toxic masculinity uh, behaviour, even men are at risk as well. And I think that um, you know, it's important that as women we use our compassion and education, and as well as religious literacy that we've really touched upon, and tools for re- reconciliation to challenge that toxic behaviour. Absolutely, and you know, I do think that I work in a quite thankfully by you know affluent area of um southwest london and let me tell you traditional gender roles in many many families are very clear for me to see when my children are being um you know my class of children are being collected there are many women who are at home and who are not working who've suspended their career for a time or they are giving the priority so this traditional gender roles it's not something that's exclusive to islam Mm. Um, it's not something that is a trait of toxicness, as you've said. It's actually followed by many families at the moment. So, Shazia, what are the aspects of, of so-called toxic masculinity which are traditional? You know, wh- what are those traditional aspects? Why would people call it a traditional gender role? I mean, I suppose it would be, you know, the man, as you said, the man going out to work, the woman doing the household chores and the childcare. But from my experience, I think most men would now want to have more involvement with their children, much more than the previous generation Mm. did. Um, And I don't think there's many people, men or women, um, excluding my sister-in-law, that is, that are that keen on housework. (laughs) Um, Of course, you know, as there are exceptions. But I think, you know, even if we look at during the pandemic, where both parents were working from home, um, yet it was often the Mm. mother of the children that was still doing all the childcare, all the schooling and all, all, all everything else to do with the children while still working from Mm. home whereas in a lot of families that you know anecdotally that that I've heard from is that that you know the man would lock himself up in in one of the bedrooms and and carry on with his work while the woman was still having to to do all these things so I think you know that is um you know the traditional roles as it were but obviously as you know societies develop and more women are 
working, um, there has to be some kind of system whereby, you know, the both parents work together to, to mm. fulfil these roles together. Mm. Yeah, I think it's um, it's important to recognise there will always be that imbalance as well in those roles. And I think that it's important that we don't necessarily um, kind of muddle um, what's traditional um, behaviour as well. So um, what's perhaps a traditional role um, in terms of toxic masculinity is something that we don't also kind of encourage as well. It's important that we discourage that and we see it as almost distasteful or unacceptable as well um, so that, you know, we um, so that people around us um, are protected. And I think um, there is a notion that, you know, tox toxic masculinity rejects um, uh, women uh, working. Um, there was a report called the Man Box that found that 22% of US men believe that they shouldn't have to do household chores. Mm -hmm. um, and 44% believe that they should be the sole income earners and 28% believe that boys shouldn't be taught things like cooking and cleaning and childcare. I think, you know, the, this sort of narrative is really quite um, unhelpful um, and it needs to be challenged. And at the moment, and in my experience as well, where it's challenged is, is through Islamic teachings and Islamic values as well. Well, I was just about to say that immediately what comes to mind is the fact that the Holy Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings be upon him, he did do the household chores mm. and it's well known, and most Muslim women know, know that, you know, he did uh, participate. So we have that real blueprint of actually somebody who is one of our key male role models was doing the household chores and was setting that example. So thank you for Sabiha for that really insightful comment. And um, I mean, what I want to ask is that, you know, is there a blueprint? There's so much changing in society in terms of working or not working or traditional values. We're this multicultural, global um, information everywhere, the touch of fingertip. Is there so much to choose from in terms of how we set our lives? Is there a blueprint that will help us navigate these roles of masculinity and femininity that, that society could use to create peace? Um, Islam advocates, uh, you know, uh, traditional roles but it's not rigid um, and it gives guidance for peace and prosperity so peace and prosperity um, the initial verse that you read out earlier Sarah you know mentions men and women are spiritually equal and receive the same reward and I think it's important to understand firstly what Islam teaches us about men and women's spiritual status because that's where the real success is and I think that's where the, that blueprint is that feeling of contentment and being at um, you know, peace in one's heart and conscience. Um, that's that's something that we should aspire to and seek in our lives, um, in in our life here and in the half uh, the hereafter as well. Um, you know, God Almighty tells us um, that by following a certain way of life, both men and women can attain to the same spiritual height, and that no double standards in Islam. That uh, requirements of piety are the same: submission to God, mm -hmm. true belief in God, obedience to God, truthfulness, um, being steadfast in the faith. You know, giving to charity, giving alms, fasting and remaining chaste. And these conditions are met in constant remembrance of God. Then both men and women can achieve nearness to God and that spiritual status as well. So I think that Islam has those teachings there to be able to offer us that um, blueprint uh, that we can then um, share with the rest of society as well. I mean, so just to jump in on that, uh, Sabia, what you're saying, this idea of being chaste, applying to men and women, that's one thing that I've found in this debate mm. online that's been affecting our young men in society recently. There seem to be in that version um, different 
uh, standards of mm. chastity for men and women. But I know as a Muslim woman that the same value of chastity is for me and for men in society. And I personally think that that's one thing um, that is is in the debate that is toxic. That actually as a man, if you're uphold, if you ex- have these expectations of women, women also have these expectations mm-hmm. of you. And you need to uphold that. And that this is what Islam teaches. I don't know, Shazia, what, what you think mm-hmm. about that. Yeah, exactly. And I think that, you know, we've said that Islam um, gives spiritual equality to both women, men and women. Um, but in practical day-to-day life, um, the responsibility for the maintenance of the wife and children is placed on the husband and on the father. Um, and men and women are equal in the sight of God, but in view of differences in, in nature, um, men and women have been assigned different roles for the smooth functioning of human society. You know, women, we have the unique ability to bear children and nurture them, but men are physically stronger. So in an Islamic society, women can occupy three positions. First, as a daughter, and her importance is such that the Holy Prophet of Islam, peace be upon him, tells us, he who brings up his daughters well and makes no distinction between them and his sons will be close to me in paradise. Mm. Um, and that's the same. You know, there shouldn't be a distinction, as you said, yeah. being chaste should be the same for men and, and, and for women. Secondly, a woman can be a wife, and the character of men in Islamic society is established in relation to their treatment of their wives or their women. And it said, there's a hadith, which is a saying of the Holy Prophet, which is, the best from among you is one who behaves best towards his wife. And thirdly, in a role as a mother, and as you said, Sarah, Islam has placed women at a higher status than men, and paradise is at the feet of the mother. So Islam recognised the great role that women play in upbringing of the children, and that the future of mankind and of societies depends on mothers. You know, the paradise mentioned by the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, refers to both the social paradise that can be achieved in Islam and the heavenly paradise. Therefore, mothers have been placed at the position of the highest respect. And in order to allow women the opportunity to fulfil the challenging obligation of producing these moral individuals who will become members of Islamic society, the responsibility for providing for the family has been placed on men. They're appointed as protectors of the members of their household. So it said, there's a hadith which again says, when you married, God appointed you trustees of those rights of your wives. You brought your wives to your home under the law of God. You must not therefore abuse the trust which God has placed in um, at your hands. And that's a saying of the Holy Prophet. So from these, we can say that although these are um, specifically instructions for women, but it, it it's about society, isn't it? It's about the, how the men treat the women um, to have a peaceful society. Mm. And also, Shazia, just one more thing that I was um, uh, thinking when you said, so you talked about wives, mothers um, and daughters. But also I know that the Holy Quran, when it instructs women to cover, the instruction is for women to cover their beauty. Mm. And for me, this has always struck me that women are therefore defined as something that's innately beautiful. Mm-hmm. The same is not said of men, <laughs> yes. I have to say. They have to cover their you know, private parts is the expression used in the Quran. But beauty is used for mm. women. And I think that often in this debate around control and toxicness, that's forgotten. Mm. In Islam, women are upheld as, as something of beauty, something mm. worth having. And, so, uh, you know, we've spoken a lot about Islam and about, as you've said, the rights that Islam gives. And any fair-minded person can see that women in Islam have got this lovely position that you've mentioned, Shazi, and to be all these things. Yet we do know practically in the world today, there are Islamic countries that do have this traditional role models that could be possibly characterized as toxic because Women are denied education in Afghanistan, for example. Mm. 
uh, you know, it's not only Muslim countries, but I can certainly point to Muslim countries where the equality you've mentioned is not seemingly impractical, uh, doesn't appear in the way people practically live their lives. So, you know, why do we still see that? Why is it that there are some Muslim countries where women are definitely oppressed? I mean, I think, you know, some men pick and choose, they misinterpret things from Islam to dominate over women and not give them the rights that Allah has given them. And then they tell women, especially, you know, Afghanistan is the country that that leaps to mind at the moment, that they're not allowed to have an education. And so if they're not allowed an education and they're not taught what their rights are, these rights that were given to them by God, um, then how... How can how can they speak out? Because they are assuming, um, being taught by the men around them, that God hasn't given you these rights and you, you, you don't have these rights. And so for them, it's very difficult to learn what's different, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Mm, I think Islam is interpreted um, in different ways as well, um, in different parts of the world, and understanding and practices have changed over centuries as well. Definitely cultural, political and social ideas have impacted that interpretation um, and, the, and the practice of Islam. Um, you know, some of these have deviated from the examples that we see in early Islam. Um, and, you know, in early Islam, we saw women as scholars, business leaders and educators, you know, even founders of universities. Um, but I suppose this is also this is also why it's really important um, to understand the the uh, teachings of the Promised Messiah on whom be peace, um, the founder of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, and you know why he, as a reformer, has come you know to revive the original message of Islam and to remind the world of the logic and beauty of Islamic teachings as well, because there's a need for it. Absolutely, and I think if you go back to those, as you said. The Muslims who were there at the time of the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, we had women who would go onto the battlefield to turn the wounded. We had women who were defending Medina from attack. Um, we had women who would take public consultation and give advice. So, uh, you know, you only have to look at it, how the Holy Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, how he treated those around him. And you mentioned the promised sire, uh, peace be upon him, and he also has left this legacy of the way he treated the women in his family, the, the the dignity with which he spoke about them and to them. And there's many recorded um, incidences of this, of, of not criticising his wife in front of others, of not chastising her publicly. You know, this is very basic things, but they're left there as a legacy. And we also know that within the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, we have this organisation of Lajna Imaila, which is 100 years old, which is for 100 years old this year. And it's for women from the age of 15 for life. Um, and that is there to educate women and to give them the the whole basis upon which that is found is, is that women are best placed to educate other women and that they should take their religious and secular knowledge and share it. Um, and Ahmadi Muslim women had, uh, you know, 100 years ago, one of the highest rates of literacy. Mm. Because, Shazi, as you said, education is, is power. And Islam educates, um, advocates education for women. So, you know, I have to say, we have spoken a lot about men in this programme, uh, <laughs> about their attitudes and their behaviours. And we've most definitely we've been looking at this through the female lens. And it's always difficult to perceive things from somebody else's point of view mm. uh, when it's not our lived experience you know however i hope that we've shown on this program that you know we're educated and articulate and uh, we do understand i mean i i wanted just to end up by saying that um 
you know, what do you perceive the ideal behaviour of a man to be? If we're saying masculinity is not about body image, it's about behaviour. What do you perceive the ideal image of masculinity to be for you? I mean, I think, you know, the fact that men can be so secure in themselves and they don't have this complex of the women in their life no more than they do, either in terms of religious or secular knowledge, um, that they know that to make a marriage work, it has to be a partnership where couples consider, discuss, make decisions together, that the man understands that for a house to work in an organised way, he can assist with the housework, Mm. he can look after the children, it's not child-minding when you take care of your own children, and he wants to do so to ensure the smooth running of his household, of the family household, Um, and that he can support his wife if they as a couple have decided that she will work outside the home. And I think giving those examples and 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 showing those examples to the younger members of your family mm. boys and girls um that can then pass through the generations to understand that that would be the way um a family could work together mm-hmm. so bia how about you what do what comes to mind when you think of the idea of masculinity i think it's um as we've said earlier in in the show as well i think it's important that um we look towards um each other um, as those who um, have the uh, potential to be able to be nurturing and understanding, mm. um, reliable, it's, it's really important that I think our starting point isn't one that is negative, mm. that we see um, each other as, as, as um, toxic in any way. And I think it's only when we harbour those the traits that we want to see in others ourselves and, you know, and kind of share that, those values ourselves about, you know, trying to uplift people and be compassionate towards people. That's when we'll also see those mirrors back to us and um, that's despite what gender uh, we are or who we are with. Absolutely and I I wanted also to take a moment to pause and say that we've spoken about Islam and what we as women do and what the Ahmadiyya Muslim community does but it would be remiss to end the programme without speaking about the impact of Khilafat and uh, the Ahmadiyya Muslim community does have a Khalifa who's our spiritual head Mm. and currently that's Hazrat Mirza Masroor Ahmed, may Allah be his helper and he is proactive in speaking to women and about women as he travels around the globe, meeting global leaders, meeting ordinary people and giving that message about equality of treatment mm-hmm. and equality of behaviour. Yes, there may be different roles, different um, gender roles that men and women are doing, but equality of treatment and equality of respect is key. And I know that uh, a few years ago, His Holiness was speaking and he said that somebody asked him a question about women and women's rights. And Hazur said, uh, he said that women flourish better when they are not under the umbrella of men. And I thought, that's fantastic, because uh, I have somebody who's my spiritual guide telling me that I'm not in a competition with men, which we haven't really touched on today, Mm -hmm. that actually I have my intrinsic value as a woman and that it is, you know, I should be able to flourish. And I think as Afghani Muslims, we're very fortunate to have um, a, a leader such as that who really gives that guidance. And he speaks directly to men and women um, and gives that very clear practical guidance of mm. how, to, how to not be toxic, how to maintain that peace. So thank you to our contributors today and for everybody listening at home. You've been listening to Pathway to Peace on the Voice of Islam radio station. You can join in the debate and discussion using the hashtag VOIPeace and you can search www.alislam.org for more information on the topics we've discussed. Assalamu alaikum, peace be upon you.